0: This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America... Here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pandemic Planet, the podcast from the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Steve Morrison, senior vice president and director of the Global Health Policy Center and the work of the commission. For this episode, we are fortunate to have the chance to talk with Dr. John Nkengason, who is the founding director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A virologist by training, he worked in Belgium, Côte d'Ivoire, and the United States before assuming his position in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, four years ago. He has deep experience working on HIV AIDS and tuberculosis and previously served as the acting deputy principal director of the Center for Global Health at the United States CDC in Atlanta. And he currently serves as one of the World Health Organization's special envoys on COVID-19 preparedness and response. So last year, as it was becoming clear that COVID-19 was here to stay with us for a while, John joined Steve and Jesse Le Pen, the United States Ambassador to the African Union, for a podcast on our sister series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, to discuss how the COVID situation was developing in the Africa region. We're here today to catch up on how things have evolved across a region that still hasn't seen the explosion of cases that we've experienced in North and South America, but with new viral variants raising questions about increased transmission and disease severity, and with several new vaccines being approved and deployed around the world, There's a lot to talk about. So John, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you. We met back in early February of last year when you were here in Washington, DC. And this was, you know, just as cases of COVID-19 were really increasing around the world. And at that point, the intensity of the outbreak seemed to be less severe in Africa than in other regions, but it wasn't really clear if that was because of the relative youth of the population, lower rates of testing at that point, or other factors. Over the next few months, it became clear that Africa might fall behind, not just in terms of access to diagnostics and treatments, but also as discussion about vaccines got underway and really as countries began negotiating deals with vaccine manufacturers, also maybe lose out in terms of access to vaccines. Now, a little over a year later, the number of cases in Africa has remained relatively low compared to other world regions, but as new variants of the virus gain traction, that may be changing. In April, you played a leading role in organizing the partnership to accelerate COVID-19 testing or PACT. As I understand, it it was really intended to improve access to test kits and, and ultimately to start producing some of those in countries throughout the region. And now you've advocated for greater African involvement in vaccine clinical trials and regional unity in terms of negotiating for access to vaccines and therapeutics. And you've argued for expanding vaccine manufacturing capacity in Africa. You know, you've had a great deal of experience working on HIV and other issues throughout the world and in particular in the region. I you know, wanted to start by asking you to reflect on your experience seeing HIV, H5N1, avian influenza, the global discussions around that, H1N1 and access to those vaccines in the early 2000s. How has that history shaped your thinking about accessing COVID tools and ultimately manufacturing some of those in the region? What would need to happen to really scale up that access and manufacturing in Africa?
1: That is a very good question. Let me start off by saying that it's amazing how one year has come and gone. I remember in February when we had this discussion, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe this crisis will, by December of 2020, this will be something we had beginning to describe it as over. But here we are in 2021. To me, now I've matured in this crisis like everyone else, and we are now in probably in the stain mode, which says that the pandemic might be with us right up to 2022 and 2023 if we do not do the right things. And I'll come back to the right things shortly. Now, before joining the Africa CDC, I spent about 29 years working in the areas of HIV, AIDS, from diagnostics to access to treatment. As you rightly said, I was in Cote d'Ivoire as a a mid-career public health officer when antiretroviral therapy was introduced in 1996, the so-called HAC, the highly antiretroviral treatment. And witnessed at that time a scenario where access to ARV treatment was not available on the continent. We started what we call the UNAIDS Drug Access Initiative to promote access to drugs that is HIV drugs, and between 1996 and 2006, when I did my maths and and look at all the data, and we published this in Nature, about 12 million Africans had died. That was a very sad page in the history of infectious diseases in Africa. And in 2009, we now witnessed the H1N1 pandemic, where vaccines were available in most developed world, but they were only accessible to developing countries after the pandemic was over. And then we are in 2020, where the pandemic hits everybody, and we start up as a continent of 1.2 billion people struggling to have basic diagnostics in the February-March timeline, when we launched the Partnership to Accelerate COVID Testing Pack. At that point, we were testing on that 350,000 people for a continent of 1.2 billion, and that initiative will now scale up testing to about 35 million in less than one year. So I think that's some remarkable progress. But there are three things that the continent of Africa must take a step back and have a courageous discussion with its partners. That is, you cannot ensure and guarantee the health security of a people without three things. One, you have to have access to diagnostics and diagnostics that you have control over in terms of manufacturing. Second is vaccines, that you have to have some say in how the vaccines are developed and not just count on others. And of course, thirdly, therapy. We recognize that it's a young continent is developing, but not paying attention to those three key elements will always be a recipe for not guaranteeing health security. I think that is very, very important. We saw this in HIV AIDS as a continent that conducts about 100 million HIV tests each year. There is no single company or country that produces a rapid test in Africa. It doesn't exist. And I sit back after close to three decades in HIV AIDS and I wonder, how is it possible that I was in HIV AIDS for three decades and I, I wasn't that vocal. And I was in action for the continent to produce its own diagnostics. I think that is my reflection when I look at the diverse pandemics, the HIV, the H1N1, and now this pandemic.
2: John, may I just interrupt for a moment to ask a follow-up on this point about your reference to HIV? I mean, today in Africa, clearly there's a great fear that there will be a, a widening gap in access to vaccines, to diagnostics, to therapies, as the West advances in its efforts as the wealthiest and most powerful move ahead, and there are calls for as you've yourself expressed, calls for dropping prices, calls for expanding manufacturing, greater flexibility in intellectual property rights and the like. On the HIV model, there you had ARTs, antiretrovirals appear in the 96 timeframe. It took four or five years before you had the pieces in place in terms of lots of financing, a PEPFAR global fund, lots of high-level political will, partnerships with African leaders and external parties, ARTs coming forward under generic licensing and tech transfer arrangements to bring mass production and lower the prices. And many of the same manufacturers, Merck, Johnson & Johnson, are today at the center of what's happening in production of vaccines and the like. Is that model partly what you have in mind right now in trying to drive forward some solutions that will scale up manufacturing of high quality, safe and effective vaccines on the continent quickly. If that's true, what's the strategy for getting there, in your view?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that is the model that I have in my mind is to develop those effective partnerships that will speak to the fact that it's not a zero-sum game if you commit yourself, these companies, to working with Africa. It is very possible that you can do well and do good. And the good is the common good. I mean, this podcast started off by saying that the security of of the United States, I would extend that to say the security of the world will henceforth be defined by the ability to do well for the companies that are inventing this, but also do good. And recognizing that, I mean, you cannot do well if there's lack of total global health security apparatus underpinned by the ability to regionalize our assets to fight these pandemics there. We have seen the limits of over-centralization of health security apparatus. Which includes the manufacturing, okay? Manufacturing in certain parts of the world, and then certain parts of the world are expected to receive that. We need to begin to regionalize that uh, health security apparatus, similar to what the military does. I don't think if you take a powerful superpower like United States, you have all your military assets in one corner of the of the United States. I'm sure that they are all regionalized, okay, for effectiveness. I think we should begin to look at that model, and that includes. In Africa, what we are calling on is not that each country manufactures its diagnostics or each country manufactures its own vaccines, but that you have also a sub-regional approach. Africa, as you know, has moved into a free trade area of 1.2 billion people. That means people and goods will be moving all across. And the success of that important aspirational goal of the continent is reliant heavily on ability henceforth to fight diseases effectively. And we should also see such domestic production as a means to stimulate economic growth of the continent and decrease its dependence absolutely on the externalities that govern whether we are healthy or not healthy. We import 99% of vaccines on the continent of 1.2 billion people going forward Africa will continue to be the largest consumer of vaccines, given that in 2024 the 2050, the population will be about 2.4 billion people. One in five human beings in the surface of the world will be an African. So I think we need to factor that into play.
0: So I want to pick up on something that Steve had asked. Really looking at this history, and I mean, Steve, you started the HIV task force, which was you know really trying to bring U.S. government together to think about different ways through diplomatic means and programmatic investments. The United States and other high-income countries could support uh, global HIV efforts, and I just wonder, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of the appetite, you know, among the G7 countries and others for embracing this kind of manufacturing process? You know, do you think the lessons from the last 25, 30 years have been learned at that level?
2: Well, if you look at what the G7, you look at the recent statements from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, they have a five-part program. Manufacturing capacity is part of that. So they flag this as a major issue. I would like to hear more from John on sort of how do you operationalize this? This world right now, we've had a shortage, a pretty acute and conspicuous shortage of high-level diplomacy around some of these problems. And it's a somewhat fragmented world in the sense that we have China and Russia in an expansive phase of influence around vaccines and the like. I don't know if that offers hope for investing in manufacturing. We have the most powerful and wealthy Western countries have been very self-absorbed in their own crises for quite some time. But you're seeing more happening in the G20 and the G7. And we see President Biden stepping forward at the Munich Security Conference at the G7 speaking, Vice President Harris speaking with uh, AU Chairman, DRC President Tisha Kedi. At the end of February, we see that. We see the rise of the AU and the Africa CDC as very important regional players now in this whole discussion, very promising development. In terms of the United States, the United States is re-entering and re-engaging in important ways. It holds the possibility of bringing its political will and, and influence and convening power to the table. It's committed $4 billion so far to COVAX over a two-year period. The current bill, the $1.9 trillion, includes $11 billion in international global health security support. We know that the United States is going to be sitting on surpluses of vaccines, abundant surpluses. We're not at that point yet, but you can project out that they're going to be very large surpluses. My question to you, John, would be, are you hopeful that the U.S. is going to step forward in a more significant fashion, engaging with you and other African leaders at a continent or regional-wide basis? And what are your expectations? What would your ask be? Is it a matter of greater resources, finances, surpluses, political will, convening power, new production partnerships? What is it that you're hoping you can derive and and see evolve in terms of the Biden administration engagement with you and other leaders in Africa?
1: Absolutely. I think to go back to where Catherine ended before you pick up, I think to be very clear, the leadership of Africa that is the level of the head of states is taking this disease crisis very seriously. I've had the humbling experience of briefing the leadership that is the level of the bureau of the head of states of Africa 13 times, 13 times, including just this past uh, two days ago, okay, where President Macron came back to debrief the head of states of Africa on what the G7 discussion was. And before you went to the G7, you actually had a meeting which, of course, Africa CDC is always calling to give their perspective, their vision, that strategy there. So that is alignment of political commitment respect for a public health institution as africa's cdc is critical we need to acknowledge that that is the first time that i see the continental leadership at political level relies solely on a public health agency for them to make political decisions and commitments so i think that is one the question of what is the ask the ask is twofold one is that let's deal with what we have the crisis we have ahead of us now is to get timely access to vaccines on the continent so that we can immunize at least 60% of our population from now to 2022. If we do not do that, Africa becomes the continent of COVID going forward, and it becomes endemic. You and I don't want to read the Lancet headline article or the New England Journal or Nature that says COVID in Africa from a pandemic to an endemic disease, that that is going to be terrible, given all the other challenges that the continent is dealing with. So if we as back here in 2022 on this same podcast and the narrative is that Africa has not been able to meet that threshold, then the narrative has to change, that we are no longer fighting a pandemic, but we need to change our thinking into how do we live with COVID in Africa? And that would not be in anybody's interest to do that. So that is one, that is immediate access to vaccines. The problem with having surpluses is that it speaks to a moral challenge here that we need to grapple with, which is that well, we've taken care of our own people, and now that we've finished vaccinating and secure our people, we can now give you the excess that we don't need. That, that is not good. I think what the discussion should be going on parallel is how do we enable you, Africa, to achieve your target of at least 60% simultaneously. If that discussion happens and they follow through, there's not just a political will in doing that, that will speak volumes and our history will remember us appropriately that we did the right thing and not just the easy thing. The easy thing is to let's get our people vaccinated, then the excess doses at the end of the year, we send it to Africa. That would not be anything that we will be proud of when we read the history of this pandemic. I think that is one. Second is the manufacturing, I learn from the past and project into the future. The past is what you and I have described, which are called several times a moral catastrophe that happened with HIV AIDS, the, the challenges of the H1N1, and learn from it so that we do not repeat the future. If we do not learn from the past, we will repeat the future. The way we take care of that is that this is a time to have a discussion and follow through the G7 and say that where are the regional sites in Africa where vaccine manufacturing can start happening now? And there are a couple of sites. I mean, the Pasteur Institute in Senegal, is already manufacturing yellow fever vaccines with an investment of about 60 million, you can bring them up to speed quickly and we transfer of technology that they can start manufacturing some of the vaccines. There are two companies in South Africa already that we've mapped out and they are very capable of manufacturing vaccines. They have to be that conversation in the short term, then we project into the long term. We are not arguing that each country in Africa should manufacture vaccines, but we're saying that by using a regional approach, it's a win-win for everybody. So I think that is will be by ask for the Biden administration to say that well, enable us to get to a 60% vaccination by 2022, enable us to start strengthening our capacity for manufacturing of diagnostics and vaccines now so that we can be better prepared in the next one year or two years for one thing we don't know how these vaccines are going to play out we don't know that immunity will last for one year two years or three years but if it turns out that we need to vaccinate annually then it even makes it a strong case that we need to have continental manufacturing capabilities
2: thank you Catherine's done a lot of thinking about covax Catherine, what do you see evolving on the COVAX side and how does that relate to what we're talking about with John?
0: Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about as all of these different vaccines sort of finish their trials and are approved in, in different places and you know, begin their rollout, you know, on the one hand, you've got COVAX and all the countries in the region have joined COVAX and then, as I understand it, also Africa CDC has either some relationship with COVAX or is doing negotiation for vaccines you know, as well. So there's a set of vaccines that are available through COVAX. But then there's also Sputnik and also the different uh, vaccines available from the Chinese firms. And you know, here in the United States, I mean, everybody's talking about, oh, this vaccine is effective in this way, and this one is maybe less effective, and there there are all these different headlines, and you know, people on the street are thinking about and comparing these things. I know the Africa CDC has the regulatory group has been busy assessing all of these different products and considering authorization. Some of the Covax products have already rolled out in Ghana and, and Nigeria. And one of the questions I've had is with this complicated vaccine landscape, what are the concerns that you see from your position within Africa CDC? And what are the messages that are most resonant among the countries about the different vaccines and where they should be looking to reach that 60% while this process of developing manufacturing capacity goes forward?
1: I think it's always going to be a partnership. I mean, I want to be very clear that the COVAG Facility is strongly supported by the leadership of the continent. I was on the call, the press conference with Dr. Tedros, Dr. Seth Beckley, and the president of Ghana, President Kofu. So we all are supportive of that, but we all know that the COVID facility is going to enable us to achieve 20% of our vaccine needs, 20%. And that is great. I mean, you don't get to 60% without going to 20%. So we as a continent say, look, if we only rely on that, then you become very quickly the continent of COVID. the next year when everybody else would have been vaccinated. Just to, to let you know, on the 19th of this month, we are going to be having a dialogue with the European Union Commission to discuss one thing which is vaccine certificates, because Europe is beginning to think of how do we, after we're vaccinated in the next couple of months, and there's no doubt that United States and, and Europe, the rich countries will get vaccinated and achieve a certain threshold. How do we impose a vaccine certificate? And we in Africa are saying, look, we fully agree that we should have a vaccine certificate like what we have for yellow fever. But before you get to that level of understanding, let us have access to vaccines and vaccinate people across the world so that we are all speaking from the same playing field. Otherwise, it will continue to create the tremendous inequities that exist. I mean, you can foresee where a whole large number of Africans cannot travel because there's vaccine certificate, because they don't have access to the vaccines. And yet there is a requirement that that you have to have a vaccine certificate to travel. So I think that is one. So AVAC, that is the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team that was set up by President Cyril Ramaphosa when he was chair of the African Union, aims to complement COVAX. Okay. And we say that 20% from COVAX plus the X percent that AVAC will be securing will equals at least 60%. Some countries in Africa have already said. John, you're 60% that is not a goal. The president of Ghana, during the press conference with Dr. Tedros, said, In quote, my goal is to immunize all Ghanaians, end of quote. Nigeria is striving to immunize more than that because they recognize that. Our epidemiology is very different. A vast majority of those that are infected are young people. They are not sick, but because they are not sick, they reservoir, they get the virus home and they continue to propagate the virus. And of course the economies are going in and out. We are seeing a trend where three out of the five regions of Africa We are going down the curve nicely. But in two regions, we are seeing an upward movement. And in East Africa, we are actually approaching the third wave already. If I look at the the daily moving curve, we have gone like this, down, we're up, and now we are beginning to go up. So that only speaks to the fact that you really need to vaccinate at scale in order to prevent this wave of the peak and the trough of the pandemic.
2: John, I wanna just ask you a question that I was reading recently an essay by Siddhartha Mukherjee, the famous writer who wrote Emperor of All Maladies, the Pulitzer Prize-winning magisterial work on cancer, also wrote a volume called The Gene, which won lots of awards. He had an essay in The New Yorker about why are we not seeing more evidence of COVID in places where we thought we'd see more? This is an issue that enters the political equation here in the United States, If we're trying to get people to prioritize Africa in particular and to make the case, look, we've invested over $100 billion in HIV through PEPFAR and the Global Fund in the last 18 years. We're very proud of it. It's had a profound achievement in creating partnerships on the continent that are very, very resilient. Um, Now we have, of course, fear that the HIV efforts will be damaged, but we also have a platform there to build upon And I think that that is a very promising aspect in arguing to Americans, look what we achieved, let's build from that looking forward. But I'd like you to say a bit about how do you answer a skeptic that says, well, actually we should be putting most of our money into Latin America. Look, it's raging there. It's much more evident what the problems are in Latin America in terms of COVID. And we haven't seen that. We've seen crises in South Africa, We've seen some upticks in East Africa, but it doesn't seem to be that big an issue. Can you just say a bit about that? But also, how do you build off of the HIV platforms that have been created by African leaders now for almost two decades with lots of substantial support from outside, particularly from the United States?
1: Absolutely. That's a very important question. I wanted to say this very clearly, that the global health security architecture of the world has always been at a better place when the United States have exercised the kind of leadership that they've always exercised in global health. And this is evidence from the contribution to the Global Fund or PEPFAR. PEPFAR was a defining moment on the continent of Africa. If you all recall, the life expectancy in many countries, especially in Southern Africa countries, was plummeting before PEPFAR came in. And then you see that it bounced. It was almost like a plane, nose diving, and then quickly come up. So I think on that, Africa will be forever thankful for that contribution and the leadership of the United States there. And it has created many opportunities to strengthen health systems across the continent. Laboratory systems have been strengthened extensively across the continent healthcare workers have been trained extensively across the continent. Infrastructure has been innovated across the continent. And it is through that infrastructure that we are able to fight COVID the way we are fighting COVID on the continent. Absolutely. If I can name them, you go to Uganda Virus Research Institute, you look at the Ethiopian Public Health Institute, you look at the Nigeria CDC, if you look at that carefully, you have strong elements of PEPFAR commitment or support in strengthening that. So that investment has paid a lot. If this was a stock market, I would say that the return on investment would has been several folds higher than what we even expected there. Now, about COVID in Africa, are we seeing enough of the burden of COVID in Africa? We are not in terms of the number of cases there. Nigeria CDC, with support of the U.S. CDC, just conducted a study in several major cities in Nigeria, including Lagos, where they found out that the rate of seropositivity was like 23% in Lagos. Lagos is a city of about 20 million people. If you translate 3% of seropositivity, that tells you that at least 2 million people have been exposed to the virus in Lagos alone, not even Nigeria, Lagos alone. So you look at that, you say, well... Yes, we are saying that our official numbers is 3.9 million, but that number could be several-fold higher than that. But what is curious in Africa is that why are we not seeing mass deaths, a lot of people dying? Well, the first answer is clearly because of our median age population is about 19 and a half years. And that has provided a shield for us as a continent for a lot of deaths not to occur. And if you look at the number of deaths during the second wave, they have been more aggressive. During the last six weeks, about 10 ministers have died in the Southern African region and many others. Mm -hmm. Within Africa CDC, just to show you the buffering effect of the young age, about 15 but my staff have been infected. They are all young people and nobody has actually gone to the hospital. They stay home for 10 days. They go back, do a repeat test. And then they're they're always... So it really speaks to clear evidence that the young age has actually helped the continent. And of course, there are a lot of unknowns. There are other factors that only extensive research in partnership with groups like the US CDC, the United States, NIH, and others will dip and begin to see why the death rates is not as high as in other parts of the world. So I think in a nutshell, the investments from PEPFAR and from the Malaria Initiative and others have contributed significantly in creating that instrument and infrastructure for us to fight COVID on the continent, no doubt about that, including the polio investments there. So I think it's Really an opportunity to strengthen that partnership and show that great leadership from the United States government
0: now you mentioned polio just now and you know thinking about the successes around immunizations over the past few decades I mean there's been an increase in immunizations of numerous child vaccine preventable child diseases you know across the continent, maybe some plateauing in recent years but you know, this has really done one of the success stories in the last couple of decades. And now, you know, there were reports last spring that surveys showed that a number of countries had really had to kind of at least temporarily suspend some of those child immunizations. Clinics were closed or health workers were diverted to other work or families were just afraid to bring their children in. Now, you know, as we look toward COVID vaccines, I mean, that's really for an adult population, at least, you know, as of now, maybe children will be part of that later. But how concerned are you about the setbacks with routine immunizations that have been experienced over the past year? And to what extent, you know, is the Africa CDC working with countries to help build up that adult immunization program, which most countries really, I think certainly here, it's a fairly newer population to bring in on a routine basis. But how is your organization working with countries to both resume child immunizations and strengthen those again, but also bring adults into that kind of programming.
1: You're absolutely right, Catherine. Each time you see a pandemic or an outbreak like the Ebola outbreak that devastated three countries in West Africa, you see many deaths occurring due to that outbreak and not necessarily because of that outbreak. So I think we have seen that over and over in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. And there's no doubt in my mind that you see that in this current pandemic, that it hasn't been quantified yet. When we designed our response strategy for the continent that we took to the head of states for the continent and they endorsed it, it was very clear that we wanted it to be underpinned by three pillars. One was the ability to prevent the infections. Second was the ability to prevent deaths. And third, the ability to define harm at that time as not just to the other diseases like HIV, but also harm to immunization programs and also harm to the economy, I think. And since then, we have been making sure that we engage countries to say, hey, look, do not let your guts down on these other infections. HIV is there, tuberculosis, malaria, but in addition, your immunization programs will suffer. And I think, of course, I have absolutely no doubt that these programs are going to be challenged going forward. Those are all the consequences and casualties of when you launch into fighting a war with a pandemic.
0: And when you think about working in some of the conflict settings in particular or rolling out vaccines in perhaps a country like Tanzania that hasn't reported cases in quite a long time, how are you working with countries to kind of address either those humanitarian challenges or those populations that are not necessarily part of the state public system?
1: You're very right. We have to be very mindful that COVID virus spreads very quickly, and that we have to, of course, do the what I call the mainstream vaccination, that is vaccinate at capital cities, vaccinate in big cities, vaccinate in the remote areas, but also do mob operations within those vulnerable populations and fragile populations, like conflict areas, refugee camps, and what otherwise We'll create pockets of reservoirs in in those there. But we require a different strategy. We require that we build partnerships with the, the peace and security, Council of the African Union, we require that we build a partnership with the military within each country, not for them to go fight in there, but rather to provide some safety nets for health workers to go into those populations and immunize. We have to, we don't have a choice. We have to bring vaccines and vaccinations into those populations because otherwise we we'll would not be getting rid of COVID.
2: John, Catherine and I and Heidi Larson have a joint project with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine focused on America and focused on the question of public trust and confidence and the misinformation, this sort of polluted digital world and where you have lots of falsehoods, conspiracy theories and the like, and the question of public confidence and trust. And we've got in our society about 13% that are expected to be kind of pretty hardcore refuseniks towards vaccines. And then as vaccines have rolled out, the numbers that are eager to get vaccinated have risen to a little over half. And then we have a body of about 30% who are kind of sitting on the fence, asking very legitimate issues, having very legitimate concerns that have to be addressed. And then within that population are many people, black and brown populations that have suffered injustice and mistreatment and abuse in our medical systems. Those disparities require enormous investment. I was interested to see that you have done a survey with the London School that showed in Africa, 80% willingness to take vaccine. My question to you is, is, is the opinion climate in Africa, you know, which is many different opinion climates, there's no single opinion climate, but my sense is that yes, there is a problem of a polluted digital world and disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theories and the like. But it seems that it's not as severe, that you have a reasonably high level of confidence and trust in med science, public health, and medicine. Is that true? Would you share that opinion? Or do you think it's, I'm being too simplistic?
1: You're right. We did that study with the London School, and it was intriguing to see the range of susceptibility over 15 countries on a sampling frame of more than 15,000 people with Heidi Lawson. And the results, depending on how you look at that, uh, are mixed. I mean, on the lower end of that spectrum, you have countries like DRC where they said about 59% or 60% said, well, if a vaccine was here, we'll take it. But you have to look at the, whether the glass is half empty or half full. I mean, what are the other 40% thinking? And will that level increase, the 60% increase once people start seeing benefits of the vaccine? I think that is key. Then on the upper end of that, the countries like Ethiopia and others uh, reported that about 90% of the population will receive the vaccines. I think that was very encouraging to look at that. So there are two sets of, you can look at that data and split it in the middle and say, look, I have a lot of work to do to uh, the lower end, uh, which we are now doing. We are using that information now to design engagement strategies with the community. Just next week, I'll be on the Nigeria TV station with Dr. Chikwe, the director of Nigeria CDC, speaking only about vaccine safety, because we know that as vaccines are beginning to be rolled out into countries like Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and et cetera, we need to be upfront because of what you just described, well, as the the intoxication of the social media with this, and we want to continue to fight that. We cannot just wish that those elements are away. We are in a new area that we have to live with the advantages of information systems that have evolved tremendously. We also have to live with the disadvantages of those and factor that into our ability to fight diseases using behavioral science as well as biomedical interventions. So we we have a huge task ahead of us, but I remain optimistic that once the first phase of vaccination starts and people see limited uh, side effects People see that people that have received vaccines not going to hospitals and nothing has happened to them. They will all go to the vaccination centers to ask for their vaccines.
2: Yeah, here in America, we've had very good fortune that in the introduction of the Pfizer Moderna vaccines, we're now at over 50 million people, about 15% of our population have received their first dose. We've had very, very low levels of adverse effects, no deaths attributed to this. And that's helped enormously because the confidence that we've gained about 10 points among our population in terms of willingness and openness to receive the vaccine. We still have a problem. We still have a problem we have to address in our country. I would think that this gets to the China question, which there's two questions. One is the fact that the Chinese are moving ahead aggressively without having disclosed phase three trial results. That's a risky proposition because it's outside the norm. And if things go badly, it could damage trust and confidence across the entire continent and beyond. And so I wanted you to speak to that. The other issue is the U.S. and China are not getting along very well on this COVID stuff, right? I mean, we had this toxic collision during the Trump administration, suspension of the relations with WHO. We now have this confrontation around the WHO investigative mission to Wuhan. And that continues where you said, of course, the Chinese are a major partner for you and the United States is a major partner in the EU and many others. And I think as we look forward into the future, we've gotta be creative in thinking about ways, where are the points of intersection where the United States and China can cooperate fruitfully in this COVID response? And I wanted to put it to you, it seems to me that you're in a very good position to help guide that, to help appeal to the better side of, of all parties to come together in support of you. You may be providing that kind of context or platform by which we could see this kind of cooperation. So those are the, my two China questions.
1: The first question is very important because, as you rightly stated, we have to be extremely careful with the COVID vaccination because if we get it wrong, it may affect the greater vaccination exercise immunization programs in all over the world, including, of course, in Africa. So we are very clear, we've developed guidance and you can see those guidance on our website where we are guiding the continent on how to make sure that you are using the vaccines that have gone through the appropriate processes there. And there are three scenarios that we've mapped out there. Scenario one is if the vaccines have been approved by the emergency authorization by WHO, Uh, Scenario two, if the vaccines have been approved by an authoritative national regulatory authority like the FDA, and then scenario three is where it has not gone through any of those processes, then we exercise our own responsibility. And by putting our own expert committees together to review everything you just stated, i.e. phase one, two, three, the data, and also safety data. In the spirit of that, and in that context, we have approached the manufacturers of the Sponik vaccine, and we now sign a confidential agreement. We shall be reviewing that whole dossier to make a pronouncement. We have also proactively engaged the Chinese manufacturers and said, look, we are here and you are distributing vaccines on the continent. Talk to us, uh, share with us so that we see everything that you are developing and designing, and it's pretty much a strong committee that we have put in place, very, very top-notch experts across the continent and outside of the continent that will work reviewing those things those years on behalf of Africa CDC. So again, you're absolutely right. Let there not be any shortcuts in this process. Otherwise, the unintended harm going forward in terms of uptake of immunization programs will suffer. And we know that vaccines are the most potent public health interventions that we discovered in the history of infectious diseases. So I think I will leave that at that. In terms of China, United States cooperation, we believe that this is a perfect area that it cannot be a zero-sum game where this country wins or another. The issues that, as a continent, we face in terms of disease threats are huge. We ourselves, as the leadership of the continent, under Chairperson Moussa Faki, the Chair of the African Union Commission, the other day was freshly calling for a new public health order for the continent of Africa to tackle our diseases, a new public health order. That speaks to what we call trusted partnership. That is one of the four key areas of that new public health order is a trusted partnership, where Partners come in, be it the United States or China, and work on the defined directions, visions, and pathway that the African continent has charted out there. And I think it provides a wonderful opportunity for coordination, for collaboration, for cooperation between the United States and China in the area of health security and just developing the healthcare infrastructure of the continent of Africa. So it is my strong call to action that uh, Africa CDC should offer a platform for a multi-national cooperation to resolve our health care challenges and strengthen our health systems on the continent.
2: John, thank you so much for your leadership and all your time. Catherine, you've got some closing thoughts?
0: I was just going to say, you know, we've talked about the past, about the lessons from the HIV pandemic, the lessons from Ebola and H1N1, and many of the different crises over the last 25 years. We've talked about the current situation and some of the mysteries or unknown, really the questions about how the situation has evolved somewhat differently in Africa than in other regions of the world, the importance of manufacturing and and regional solidarity and partnership. But I wanted to take a moment to look toward the future and ask you, John, to kind of putting yourself eight to 10 years into the future, let's say 2030. You know, if you were to look back on the early 2020s and the COVID-19 outbreak, what do you, looking back from that vantage point from nine years in the future, what would you hope to be able to say, well, you know, we got that right. We really brought everyone together. We did this in the right way. And are there any issues that, you know, as you think about what you're doing right now that you sort of worry 10 or so years from now, mm, maybe we got that wrong.
1: Very important words of wisdom going forward in 2030 from you, Catherine. I think in 2030, I hope that I sit there in a panel and contributing to a book chapter that says that we learn lessons from this COVID-19 it's a big difference between learning a lesson and just sharing the experiences i think we tend to just share the experience in a pandemic and outbreak and move on and because memory is very short i think during the west african ebola outbreak there we had slogans like never again you and i know how many commissions were set up how many reports were written in prestigious journals like the Lancet, the New England Journal, and all over that. And all you need to do now, after six years from that outbreak in West Africa, is to take those same reports, replace Ebola by COVID, and you have a report already that would outline everything that we need to do. But <laughs> let me leave you with two things that we need to reflect on in 2013. One is that have we truly been courageous enough to look at our global Health security architecture. And that must be defined at three levels. The global level, with WHO that is empowered and strengthened. So, strengthening WHO doesn't mean we just give it money, that we give it money, but we give it some authority. And then at a regional level, the regional bodies like the Africa CDC, the European CDC, the PAHOS are also strengthened and empowered to do certain things regionally. And then at national level, those are three layers that are going to give us that guarantee in 2030 that we can swing into action quickly and resolve these issues that we are dealing with in 2020. That resembles so much the issues in 2009 and also resembles the issues in 1996 during the AIDS crisis. That is one set of issues to think of. The second set of issues would be for the continent of Africa. I hope by 2030 to have taken also a strong political Will and commitment, underline the word commitment and say that we are going to do three things right. One is that we want to increase our own workforce development on the continent, public health workforce development. We currently need about 6,000 responders, disease responders or epidemiologists. We only have 1,900. By 2030, I wish that we have at least match that gap and bring our own responders to more than 6,000. And second is that We have now graduated from this concept of developing a roadmap for production of diagnostics vaccines on the continent to actually doing it. And on the 12th of April, they're convening a meeting at very high level at the head of state level to begin to think of a roadmap and a framework on how to actually begin local continental manufacturing in partnerships. And the last thing will be that we actually deliberately strengthen our own public health institutions across the continent, like the Africa CDC is just four years old, but the faith, the trust, the belief that I've seen from the head of states in Africa CDC suggests that we are at a good point to leverage political will, commitment, policy, and also public health on the continent of Africa. So I remain very hopeful projecting into 2030.
0: Dr. John Nkengasan, Founding Director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, thank you for sharing your thoughts around health security, health institutions, self-sufficiency in terms of manufacturing, partnership, and solidarity with respect to both the COVID-19 outbreak and beyond on the continent of Africa, and for your leadership and tireless work on behalf of improving health regionally and globally. Thank you very
1: much thank you as always for the opportunity to have this conversation thanks so much john
0: if you enjoyed this podcast check out our larger suite of csis podcasts from into africa the asia chessboard china power aids 2020 the trade guys smart women smart power and more you can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like itunes and spotify